A um, very interesting new book has just appeared, and its author is one of our two guests tonight. It is titled Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. Daniel C. Dennett, who is professor of philosophy at Tufts University, where he heads the Center for Cognitive Studies, is the author of that book. It is a book which attempts to account for religion essentially in evolutionary terms, in just how and in what way we will shortly learn. In conversation with Daniel C. Dennett and with David Cook, who is our other guest tonight, also a philosopher, professor of that discipline at Wheaton College, fellow of Green College at Oxford University, and professor of Christian ethics at Southern Seminary. Uh, you will not resist, Daniel Dennett, my suggesting that your book is in line with a classic work, uh, one that I have taught at times, titled Das Zukunft einer Illusion. Otherwise, yes, uh, Freud. Freud's book, The Future of an Illusion. Yes. Uh, Freud's argument, how would you summarize Freud's argument in that book, and how does your argument differ or add on? Oh, my. Uh, Freud saw religion as, as a natural phenomenon, as mm -hmm. I do, and as uh, growing out of deep psychological problems in the human psyche that needed to be resolved in various ways. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, but not being convinced by Freud's basic psychoanalytic theory, I'm going to go back and go over the same ground and do it a different way. <coughs> but Freud argued that the two things that really burdened man so much to which religion provided an answer was one, the reality of and the fear of death, yeah. and two, the sense that society hemmed him in and required him to give up much of his instinctual equipment, and there had to be some justification for That's that. right, yes. Uh, yes, uh, society tamed this wild animal and left the animal uh, with uh, terrible urges that, that, that religion was a, was a uh, uh, palliative to, I suppose, mm -hmm. a response of one sort or another. And that's one of actually many plausible theories uh, which have been put forward over the last few hundred years. And there's probably some elements of truth in them. But I think we should do better, and I think we should do the kind of research that would enable us to mm -hmm. separate the wheat from the chaff. And we will see just what you propose in the new book, Breaking the Spell. But let me turn first to David Cook and ask him for a preliminary evaluation of that earlier theorist whom I've just been talking about, we've been talking about, namely Sigmund Freud. In that particular book, though one could also point to his book, Moses and Monotheism, Freud makes some big try to uh, account for the origin of religion and the way in which it was shaped. How did you respond to that when you read it? Well, Freud is interesting because he gives us moments of insight. The difficulty is you have to be a Freudian and you have to accept mm -hmm. his way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And the problem is whether or not you really want to buy the whole package. Uh, and it's, it's how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? And every now and then there are real moments of insight. There are moments of real illumination. But uh, so much of the Freudian analysis depends on his particular worldview, which even uh, in the psychoanalytic field is hotly debated. By now, we've put aside original Freudianism with regard to the primacy of the Oedipus complex and of uh, the libido as the main source of all that energizes life. Uh, and uh, I w would agree with both of you that Freud, if not quite a fraud, at least has been much outdated by further work and by philosophy of science itself. Uh, Karl Popper's analysis of the defects of Freudianism still stands, I'm sure. But let us come then, David, or rather Daniel, directly to 
David and Daniel, uh, two two Old Testament names. I suddenly remind myself. Oh, yes. Uh, let us come directly, uh, Daniel Dennett, to your view of uh, the origins of and the functionality of religion. One has to ask first, where did it come from? Is it an inevitable part of human equipment? Uh, inevitable is a strong word. I think it's a, it, it's a, in some sense, a, a probable development out of the series of accidents that led to our distinguishing ourselves from our other primate cousins uh, once the human uh, lineage gets started, and particularly once language comes in, mm -hmm. then I think something like religion is is a very, very probable. Why and how? Because we share with mammals in general uh, a, an innate, and this is, my book isn't about genes, very little about genes. It's, it's about what's built on top of genes. It's about cultural evolution, much more than genetic evolution. Mm -hmm. But what we do have in our genes, as do dogs and gorillas and dolphins is an innate disposition when something puzzling or surprising or complicated happens that we don't understand basically to say who's there to treat that as an agent mm -hmm. to have a an agent detector on a hair trigger and to try to see what it wants what it knows where it is and this in most animals simply leads to a sudden growl from your dog when 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 a when a stick falls. So the so God originates for us in the alertness reflex. Uh, that's the alertness reflex is I think part of the part of the ground in which this arises. That's right. And in other creatures, it just extinguishes itself uh, because it has nowhere to go. In us, we've got language. We've got a an echo chamber of a mind too, and so we can rehearse it and rehearse it and think about it mm -hmm. and spell it different ways and think about it some more and talk about it with our friends. Pretty soon we've generated a whole population of leprechauns and goblins and but gods. No, but but and what's, what's the founding scene? You remember that Durkheim, another great theorist of religion, mm -hmm. accounts for the origins of religion in the social frenzy that happens in the uh, annual meeting of the tribes in Australia where they whip themselves into a frenzy and get themselves drunk both with sexual excitement and with yep. some kind of primitive uh, uh, form of alcohol as well. And then they feel the power of the collective itself upon them. And they had need to represent the collectivity, which was tremendous power they feel. And for that, they choose a totem, whether a tree or an animal. And they say, that is sacred. Uh, that's Durkheim's theory, as given in uh, his book on yep. the origins of religion. Uh, uh, as to the origin of religion. What is the prototypical moment in which we invent God? I think that's the wrong question, as usual, because in biology, the prototypical moments are vanishingly hard to see. Uh -huh. Evolution is about things that almost never happen, but when they do, they change everything. Every birth and every lineage is a potential speciation event. Not one in a billion is. Every moment in the ancestry of our, in our human ancestry, was a potential moment for the birth of religion, but it wouldn't be distinguishable at the moment from anything else. It would just look like somebody startling out in the woods someday when a stick fell out of a tree. And saying to himself, what? Who's there? Who's there? And... and Finding an answer which was, if you like, 
as good as randomly generated. Yeah. But then finding an idea that just sort of stuck in his head said, oh, my gosh, I think there's an invisible agent out there. Uh -huh. And now this becomes a little bit obsessive, and it repeats. Most of these ideas don't repeat, almost never. Once in a while, one of them reproduces in his head well, and then a, reproduces again. On the basis of a general evolutionary disposition, you would say the ones that repeat have some particular adaptive value. Right, to themselves. They're the ones that win the population explosion in the brain of the mm -hmm. individual. They out-replicate the competition, which, you know, the, the talking tree happens to be more memorable to this fellow than, than the toad god. And the toad god happens to be a little better uh, mm -hmm. to somebody else than the, uh, the, the spirit that rules the waves. And, and so there's a competition among all of these imaginary agents for rehearsal time in various brains, and the ones mm -hmm. that not only survive in individual brains, but that get shared around, become a sort of a local population of imaginary creatures, which then become mm -hmm. the population from which the next evolutionary event occurs. Nobody invented them. Nobody, there's, they don't have no authors. They just arose by a process of cultural evolution. And they are, in fact, what you and Richard Dawkins call memes. That's right. Not. Yeah. Explain meme, M-E-M-E. -E. Uh, Thirty years ago, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Selfish Gene, proposed that nothing in evolutionary theory said that you had to have a carbon base, you had, to have a, uh, you had to have a protein base for replication. Any medium where you have copying, reproduction, competition, and where you have dissent with modification is potentially a medium in which evolution will take place. Evolution by natural selection. The process itself is substrate neutral. It, could, it can happen on computers, it can happen with genes, and he said it could happen in human culture. Now, when he first put the idea... It could happen with ideas or thoughts. Ideas, yeah. yeah. Now, not every idea is a meme. If, if you just have a, the idea of an you know, of a, of a orange cat, it comes in your head and goes. That's not a meme. But if the idea comes and comes and comes and comes in your head, and then you spread it to other people, and then they all start thinking about an orange cat, if, that becomes a meme. Or if Gillette Burgess writes a little bit of doggerel, I've never seen a purple cow, I never hoped to see one. Well, and I can tell you anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. There you go. The got purple it. cow is in our repertoire forever. And, and now, you know, I will probably repeat that in the next week. I may find myself walking down the street <laughs> unable to get the darn thing out of my head. And notice, what's it good for? It's good for reproducing in people's heads. Yeah. That's what it's good for. But this is interesting. But from all, of course it's interesting. But from all of this, how do you get to Moses on, uh, and Jehovah on Sinai? How do you get ah, yes. to the resurrection of Jesus the Christ? How do you get to uh, Muhammad in the cave and the archangel Gabriel squeezing him and telling him, recite, and out comes the Quran? The way you get there is the same way we got to cattle and sheep from their wild ancestors. The original religious memes were wild. They didn't have stewards, they didn't have shepherds, but they were brilliantly adapted by evolution, not by any individual, to, to live with human beings. They like, like spoken languages. They don't need guardians, they don't need 
police, they have them. They, have, they, take, on a of, they take on a life of their own. They take on a life of their own. Yeah. So first, there were lots of undomesticated ideas, God ideas, call mm -hmm. them, and sprite ideas, and lots of supernatural ideas. And they weren't domesticated. Then, after agriculture got going, and people began living in larger groups. A specialization, division of labor, was made possible. And the seeds were in place. The, the ground was set for the domestication of some of these ideas and the creation of organized religion. And it required writing, because now you were going to have texts and you were going to have, in effect, guilds of priests. And once domestication sets in, an entirely different evolutionary scenario opens up because now you have individuals thinking foresighted now we've got intelligent design if you like in in the in the form of individual groups of people and individual people who are trying to make these ideas work for them in various ways early theologians so to speak that's right david cook you will not resist my defining you as a believing and serious Christian. No, that's, I'm very happy with that description. As a serious Christian, who in fact is also a professor at Wheaton College, um, can you accept that Christianity comes later after the sort of process that Daniel Dennett has been describing? Well, but that the origins of religion, including the religious impulses which uh, evolve into Christianity, is something like what he has positive. Well, I'm confused. I'm confused because we started with Freud, and then we went to Durkheim, and then we added Dawkins, as if somehow you put all these different levels of explanation together, uh -huh. and you produce one master kind of theory. Uh, I'm confused because uh, to ask the question, what is the function of religion? What's the instrument? What does it produce? In a sense, begins from the human end. Uh, and religions and, and Christianity and, and Judaism and Islam begin not from the human end with these different kinds of whether it's a social or a biological or a cultural or a psychological theory, but actually from the idea that there is a God who reveals himself. That God speaks. That God speaks. Yeah. And on that basis, people respond. And without God speaking, we would really know very little about it. And that's my difficulty, that if I try to, to create religion, and particularly religion as it is today, I don't understand mm -hmm. how we could get it from all these different sources. If we're going to talk about memes, I don't understand why it's been so spectacularly successful in my case. I, I've really uphold this meme, but, but in Daniel's case, he doesn't uphold it. So what is the evolutionary process? You mean why you are a believer? And he, and I'm he, a believer and he's and not he a believer. Not. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I'm confused by the, the status both of the view itself and the kind of evidence which would count for or against it. I think that's my difficulty. Well, how do you account for your being a believer and Daniel Dennett not being? Has God spoken to you but not to him? Well, I, I think that God has spoken to both. The question is whether or not we are listening and willing to respond uh -huh. uh, to God. And, and so in that sense, I don't think it's God's fault that Daniel's not a believer. Uh, he is able to have the freedom. And that's one of the wonderful things about the nature of God, as we understand that God gives people the freedom to make choices. And part of making a choice is saying, yes, I can believe, or no, I can't believe. Notice it's believe. The evidence is never overwhelming. That would destroy the nature of faith. 
So there has to be uh, evidence which counts for. In, in the New Testament, there's a guy who meets Jesus says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Yeah. There's that struggle with belief and, and not believing. So, of course, we want to look at the evidence. Of course, we want to evaluate it. But uh, that people do not believe is because it doesn't hold together. I was taught uh, philosophy of religion by an atheist, and he used to say, the difference between you and me, David, is for you it all fits together, and for me it doesn't. So that's one kind of way of expressing the difference. Excellent. The, um, the debaters joined. Uh, Daniel Dennett. One of the important things you just said, you talked about faith, and you talked about the importance of belief. Uh, and what fascinates me is that is a concept which is completely lacking in the wild religions that were then domesticated and turned into the organized religions. They have no use for the concept of faith. They don't even have any sense that they're practicing a religion. This is just what everybody knows. Uh, the very idea of faith, and in particular... But earlier you said that there were different people had different views, whether it was the toad or the totem or whatever. And if that was the case, then they didn't all believe the same thing. Oh, of course they didn't believe the same thing. Against. But, but, but that, those disagreements were just like disagreements we might have about whether there's beer in the fridge or whether there's a lion around the corner. This is just part of what they think they know. And, and they had no use at all for the idea of even religion. They had no sense that I, they had I must intervene to ask you, how do you know this? You're talking about Neolithic man, yeah, more or yeah. less. How do we know this? He didn't write, he didn't leave well, us any records. Well, first of all, first of all, we, we know from, from the, the folk religions of today, among yeah. hunter-gatherers and so forth, they don't think of that as a religion. They, they don't have any idea that this is faith. This is just what, you know, what, what, this is what we know, and this is what everybody knows. It's an empirical system. It's an empirical system, yeah. and, and they don't have the idea that, that that if you if you didn't believe it you'd just be stupid you wouldn't be you wouldn't feel any guilt i mean the whole idea that you should feel morally mm -hmm. burdened by the fact that you you'd lost your faith this is this is a very clever adaptation of organized religions it's it's a supremely clever idea and it's it, exactly the idea that Daniel himself has, because, of course, if he were to give up his search for evidence, if he were to give up the evaluation of the Freud or the Darkheim or the Dawkins, he would feel guilty because he believes in these people. He has some kind of faith. And really, the difference is I, that we I, believe, I believe in. I believe in evidence and reason. And, and, and so do I, and I think it's yeah. it's a little bit insulting to suggest that I'm not going to take evidence and science seriously. But, but, the question uh, is, what's the context? But David, what one does have to note, as a matter of intellectual history, does one doesn't one have to note that uh, with the uh, scientific revolution, as it came from say the, as it was a borning in the 16th century, and as it develops into the age of enlightenment and so on, and maybe as it summates. For example, in the writing of David Hume, when it comes to somebody of, of scientific orientation looking at religion, uh, we find a kind of falling away of, of uh, standard faith, and that is Christian faith in the Western world, on the part of the intellectuals. I think three responses. The first is that there wouldn't be science as we know it in the Western world without religion, without Christianity. That was the framework in which it actually was expressed. Secondly, we have to recognize that if you want to use Hume as an example, Hume denies the notion of causation. And that's quite fundamental to the nature of science. Mm -hmm. So to use Hume as the well, classic picture of the scientist... Well, 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 I think actually Hume's, Hume's views on causation are still quite congenial to modern science, 
we've got some n nice new wrinkles on causation, but but they're not profoundly anti-Humean. I think that that uh, when you say Hume doesn't deny the notion of causation, he has in fact a very elegant and, and well, but he has, but he doesn't believe there's a, a, mm. any fundamental re it relationship. He thinks it's a human construct. Mm. It's a not constant quite. conjunction. No, it's, it's well, the but, idea. Well, well, but, but forget is, David. Yeah, yes, let's put David Hume aside. To one other the, the broader point I'm making is that scientists generally have been rather disabused. Mm. Of religious faith. Well, it's, it's interesting. In the, in the faculties in Oxford, we have more Christians in the science faculties than we have in English and humanities. Not at the University of Chicago. Well, that yeah. may be. I just have to tell you my experience in Oxford. Uh, and it's interesting that throughout the UK, that would be the experience. Because often the people who are doing the science uh, are confronted with a sense of order, a sense of purpose, and that drives them to what they regard as the logical conclusion. And they are very much possessed, as I am, in fact, personally, not that that matters, of uh, the validity of the Nietzschean or the Heideggerian question, why is there anything rather than nothing? That is, origin and origination uh, it uh, screams at you as a question that must be answered. That's right. And, and so Daniel then either has to say to me, uh, this is what caused it, or it just happened that way, there was some sort of chance evolution, or, as I believe, there was a divine creator, and that was the source of order, purpose, and meaning. Mm. This is the this is the trickle down theory of order, purpose, and meaning. Trickle says, down? How so? Um, this is an idea that I think, maybe even before Homo sapiens, our ancestors may have had some dim inkling of this, and that is the idea. It takes a big, fancy, wonderful thing to create a lesser thing. Thus, you never see a pot making a potter. You never see a horseshoe making a blacksmith. It's always big fancy people type things making much or a watchmaker making a watch or a watchmaker making a watch and that idea seems so natural and so intuitive that a lot of people think they, they just can't deny it and then along comes Darwin and shows now you can turn the idea absolutely upside down you can have a bubble up theory of creation and even meaning and purpose and and importance can emerge out of processes which are themselves not meaningful, purposeful, or even important. Important so can arise... It's a function of human creation, then? It's, it's, it's a human construct. No, it's, it is in part a human construct, but a hum, human constructs are constructs of... They are themselves fruits on the tree of life. And the whole biosphere <laughs> and all the importance in it and all the meaning and purpose in it arises out of an underlying process which is itself has no meaning. So is there any truth then? That, that's really Absolutely. the question. Absolutely. Sure. Well, what is the nature of the truth then? What do you mean, what's the nature of the truth? Well, uh, if it were purely a function of an evolutionary process, what makes your view and your statement as part of that evolutionary process better or worse than my statement, which is also allegedly, according to you, part of the evolutionary process? That's right. Why take well, one rather than the other? Well, let's, let's look at that question, and it's a per perfectly good answer to it, and that is, um, anything that's going to move around in the world has to has to gather information about the world so it doesn't bump into things and doesn't can, fl can flee from the predators and find the food. So it's going to need sense organs and it's going to need a way of putting the the deliverances of those sense organs to good use. And what's the what's the optimal design of those? Well, it's not just getting it right; it's getting it right in a cost-effective and timely way. So we get a we get a cost-benefit profile which leads to an arms race of what 
of truth-seeking machinery, of better and better eyes, better and better ears. The, the evolution of distal sense organs is a fabulous innovation which sets off wonderful trains of development in the animal. May I interpose for a moment right. to say, just by way of translating some of this for our listeners, that in a way you are uh, giving the answer to, or the rejection to, uh, any possible notions of intelligent design. Oh, sure. Um, intelligent design is just a fraud. Um, Consciousness itself, which you've been much concerned with in earlier yeah. work, emerges uh, out of unconscious or non-conscious material. Absolutely. Of course it does. And and if you're going to have a theory of color, it better not be a theory which says, well, when you get down to the little tiny, tiny atoms in their parts, well, some of them are red and some of them are blue. Mm. If, if you, That's not a theory of color. That's a postponement of a theory of color. And if you're going to have a theory of consciousness, it better be a theory which is, shows how parts that are not themselves conscious. But if we're going to have a theory which says this is the way that religion developed because there is an adaptive purpose to it, then I wonder what sense it makes to say God, the creator, enters into space and time as a helpless baby in a manger, lives an ordinary life, uh, is crucified on a cross, and is resurrected again. It, uh, it would defy common sense to make that story up. What an Oh, not at would all. It it's a fantastic it story. It's a wonderful what story. What does it do? Don't oh. we have approximations of that story in earlier religions? We in do. Myth in Mithraism, for example, which precedes Christianity. Well, of course, the, the, there are parallels, but it's whether or not God enters into space and time in, in that same kind of way, enters in as a human being, and then uh, lives the life of a human being, and sacrifices himself for the sake of humanity. But we have man-gods. We have, uh, in, in the Greek pantheon, there are gods who decide to come down and play the human play the human game quite and and whether or not today we find that the modern human beings are responding to the notion of uh, here is Poseidon who's going to rule the sea mm -hmm. so let's uh, worship Poseidon but uh, if I go to Africa if I go to Latin America if I go to the churches in in the US of A then I find that people are responding to Jesus in a way that they're not responding to the notion of Poseidon because they find that he does bring change and transformation not just to individuals, but to communities. I, yes, I, th I think the, uh, the story of Christianity, as, as the movie title of years ago said, the greatest story ever told, a beautifully crafted story, very effective, very affecting. It is, as far as we can tell, uh, elements of it are borrowed from earlier stories that were very popular at the time. And there's a clear evolutionary history of how various themes were adapted into this story. That it works beautifully, I do not deny, I insist upon it. It is a, it is a wonderful, moving story, and that it should be created and recreated, and it should have evolved into its current form. And of course, it's quite a different form now than it was 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago, is, is not surprising. That's just what you would expect. This is a point at which I'd rather call a brief halt because some commercials are due, but it's also a good place um, to stop for a second because it leads on to the next point. You've just been talking about Christianity as being very beautiful, and you would agree it's also very functional, has great utility for those who hold that belief seriously. Yet, just as Freud does in his book, The Future of an Illusion, you argue in this book that it is time for human rationality to take over and to dismember or deconstruct religion and to put religion aside. When I was a child, I 
held religion as a child. Actually, I don't say that, no. Now that I am a man, I think you are suggesting it's time to put away these illusions. Uh, you certainly are not totally tolerant of religion as it is presently practiced. Uh, we look for, I look for, Daniel Dennett's ideas about what we ought to do about religion and David Cook's response to those ideas after we pause for this. And we return to David Cook, professor of philosophy at Wheaton College and fellow at Green College at Oxford University, um, professor of Christian ethics also at Southern Seminary, and Daniel C. Dennett, who is director of the Center for Cognitive Studies and is professor of philosophy at Tufts University in the suburbs of Boston, and um, who's uh, a very well-known and very significant American intellectual by virtue of his earlier work on consciousness and on the further development of an adaptation or utility of evolutionary theory. Many will remember his uh, one of his more recent books is titled Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Another such book was titled Consciousness Explained. And the new book, which gives us the occasion for this conversation tonight, is titled Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. That's published, by the way, by Viking Books. And... Did I have you completely wrong when I was suggesting earlier that, like Freud, you think we've reached the point where rationality and scientism should displace religion? Not scientism? I beg your pardon. Rationality and science? Should... No, in fact, I'm quite agnostic on that score. Um, when I set out to write this book, I thought, well, is religion, all things considered, something that we really want to preserve or not? And I don't know, and I still don't know, because until we do the research that I'm calling for, I don't think we can we can really assay. What research are you calling for, then? Research on how religion works, why it works, what needs it may actually provide for people. It, there's a lot of lore out there to the effect that without religion, people would be immoral. I think that's poppycock. Good thing, too, because it's a very demeaning view of human beings. There's a lot of lore out there that says that religion is good for your health. That seems to be true. Uh, we can study that carefully and find out. Uh, there's a lot of lore out there that says that, that religion is the only way that we can form really good teamwork, that moral teamwork. We need it for cooperation. I think that mm -hmm. used to be true. Uh, uh, David said that we wouldn't have science without religion as its foundation. I think that's right. But I think you know what a nurse crop is? Uh, I don't, I'm afraid. Well, uh, I learned this from my, my neighbor up in Maine when I was reseeding re my hayfield. And he says, Danny, he says, you want, he says, you want to plant oats as a nurse crop when you plant your timothy. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, he says, the oats come up first. They're hardier, and they protect the timothy, uh, protect it from, uh, uh, they keep the weeds down, and they, and they provide a sort of foundation until the timothy gets going. He says, once, once, once the timothy gets going, he says, you can harvest the oats. You can do what you want with them. It's just... It comes up first, and it provides a certain uh, structure right, for the that, field. That's and I think that's what I think that's what I think religion is a great nurse crop for civilization. I doubt if civilizations could have really got going without the particularly intense effects of religion. But I think we may have outgrown those. I think it's an interesting example of uh, how you are seeking to avoid the genetic fallacy there, because here you're saying, well, here we've got the the oats, and that's a, a thing that I can lead to my Timothy. So my Timothy is something different from the oats. But I think that the, the book itself and the argument of the book, it, it, even if I were to buy it, even if I were to accept it all, which I don't, but even if I did, then that wouldn't give me an explanation of what religion is today. But I think my real 
problem is is this confidence in faith and in science and rationality because uh, part of my own expertise is in the area of medical ethics and we've been uh, shocked by what's happened in korea and the claim there that they could actually do a certain kind of cloning and the scientific world accepted it uh, and now we discover that that wasn't quite the case and it wasn't quite the case because human nature whether it was pride in your country or whether it was money or whether it was the desire to win a nobel prize whatever kind of reason and that's the difficulty science and rationality don't live in a box on their own they're expressions of human nature and and religion seeks to address what is the nature of human beings and how mm -hmm. can we channel that how can we control that how can we help people overcome some of the drives towards evil. David, let me put uh, a, a question to you as a sort of dialogue. I'm not arguing Daniel's position, but I guess I'm just pursuing my own curiosity on this. Um, if one were to grant that God is, and that God is benign in his intention toward all living things, but particularly perhaps to the species Homo sapiens, who come closest to uh, uh, divining his nature. Why then has he allowed or encouraged or uh, tolerated the development of so many different religions, so many different ways of conceptualizing uh, the, trans the transcendent, well, you, and so many different ways of relating to the transcendent? Well, you have a wonderful view of uh, what you think, if you were God, you would do. You'd make sure that everybody had to believe in the same kind of way. But if you have... Well, they God, should all know my true nature. Well, well, but uh, part of knowing the true nature is whether or not people have a genuine freedom to respond or not to respond. Now, if I so... Uh, reveal myself in a way that leaves no possibility of people deciding for themselves, then it has to be absolutely commonsensical and it would be totally nonsense and irrational for anybody to believe, uh, not to believe, because it would be so obvious that there was a God. But the evidence, of course, is evidence which uh, is ambiguous. There is an ambiguity. Uh, and, of course, part of that ambiguity is that the world in which we live isn't an ideal world. Now, we have to ask why. Um, Daniel is concerned about uh, the causation, and part of the causation are the choices that human beings make. I've been watching the cartoon, uh, I was in Norway the other week, uh, and there we were watching the cartoons and the response to the cartoons. And, and what's happening here? It's human beings who are responding uh, two situations. It's human beings. Oh, you mean those cartoons about uh, about Muhammad. About Muhammad. Yeah. Uh, and so here you have, on the one side, you have the the Western liberals saying, "Oh, this is freedom of expression. We should be able to say anything we want, and there ought not to be any kind of censorship." On the other side, you have people are saying, "Well, I happen to believe that uh, making an image of Muhammad is something which is fundamentally opposed uh, and belittles my faith. It's a form of." Uh, um, blasphemy and you ought not to do this but these are human beings who are responding and our difficulty is how can we deal with human beings how can we deal with the selfishness and greed of human nature how can we overcome that and that's what Christianity that's what religion genuine religion offers a way of overcoming the evil in humanity doesn't that, seem to be doing a very good job 
Well, it depends, because in your book it's interesting how you're at some pains, because you are a reasonable person, to, to praise the way in which religions have been engaged in, in social activity, how, how they've actually met the needs of the poor, how they fed the hungry, how they fulfilled the kind of teaching which Jesus emphasized was the mark of genuine religion rather than false religion, where people said, I believe, and it didn't make any difference to the way that they lived. So you can't have it both ways here. Well... I don't want to have it both ways. I, w I want to just get the truth out, and the truth is mixed. I would like to see an even-handed assessment of the strengths and weaknesses, the pros and cons of religion, mm. because I absolutely agree. Religion has done a lot of good for a lot of people. It's also done a lot of harm. Now let's see if we can figure out, is there something that could do the same amount of good and maybe even more good that isn't religion? That's an interesting question. You know, when you were talking earlier about the various goods that we have from and have historically had through religion, there is one that I think you left out, which uh, concerns lots of people who look at what may be das Untergang des Abendlandes, the decline of the West, that as religion sinks in the West, uh, social solidarity and, uh, and commitment to the maintenance of a general social tradition, the defense of a general civilization also sinks. If we are now threatened by an Islamification of Europe and ultimately a rising force uh, represented by vigilant and doctrinaire uh, Islamic rage, it may well be that uh, we don't have the moral equipment or the ideational equipment to counter that threat because we have, to put it very simply, lost our faith. There's much faith in Christianity and in Judaism out there in the world. There's also much faith in Islam at its best. but something is coming on which requires a kind of response that maybe only truly people bound in a religious community are capable of making. Well, you're awfully close to saying something I think extraordinarily dangerous. You haven't said it yet, but you're right on the edge, so let me just point out the cliff that you're walking along the edge. Do, please. Um, first, let me say, I put my faith, and it's just, it's not faith in the religious sense. This is, this is where I, this is where I this is where I jump. This is the lifeboat I want to protect. Mm. In the confidence and the, and the allegiance to democracy, truth, freedom, and I think an army, let us say, a nation that has that as its, as its primary, as its sumum bonum that it is out to protect, is quite able to withstand the, the challenges from any religious army in the world. Now, I agree that that's a, that's a, I'm not sure of that. That's it's a disingenuous. Scary, that's a Daniel. scary. It's disingenuous because you say, I believe in democracy. Mm -hmm. And when the Palestinians exercise a democratic right and elect a government that people don't like, the West holds up its hands I, in order. I quite agree that. I, so I quite democracy agree. isn't enough in and of itself. Well, well, democracy properly understood would be just fine. Gentlemen, we're, in the, we're at a very interesting point in this conversation, and I intend uh, that we continue along these very lines. But. We are approaching the moment when I must call a brief halt for an update on the evening's news. With apologies to Paula Cooper for reading the wrong line. I've been so involved in this conversation that I got somewhat di cognitively disoriented. But let me turn back to those issues, cognitive as they may or otherwise as they may be. And let me do it another way, uh, by reminding you of something in our tradition. Uh, certain important writers, um, T.S. Eliot being one, 
before him say Matthew Arnold. Just think of the, uh, the poem Dover Beach. What they are mourning is the loss of faith. I forget the exact lines of Dover Beach, but he's talking about the faith that once held civilization together is now receding, just as the waves that are coming into the shore are then receding away from us. Uh, all love, let us be true to one another, because nothing else really sustains us now. I, th I think you make an excellent point that part of the, the looking at America, I come as a visitor uh, and you see the gap between the Midwest where the, the traditional values of morality are very strong and then the East and the West Coast where the, the, there seems to be a much more extreme and you, you fear long term for the well-being of the American nation whether or not they can continue to hold together but I don't think that ought to be a reason for the truth or falsity mm. of religion. Uh, I, I'm a little bit concerned about, again, this instrumentalism which says, well, we'll believe it if it does some good. Well, that's a, a great American epistemological standard laid out by William James. Well, quite. That, a, that and, is pragmatism. Isn't uh, it? And whether or not we, we want to replace pragmatism by a proper understanding of truth, I think that's where Daniel and I would agree that, that actually we want to look at evidence. We want to compare and contrast competing theories. But whether or not we can do it quite in the way that this book suggests, where we take what you, you need and you do what you will and you end up where you want to. I think oh, that's no, the come on. That's, uh, I, th I think what's upsetting some people uh, who, who are uh, uh, religious and, and defenders of religion is they see me applying an even standard, an even-handed level playing field to religion, and they're not used to that. They're so used to being given the benefit of the doubt and being given the sort of deference that when I say, I'm just going to be neutral here, they say, oh, that's shocking, that's shocking. It isn't. If you were neutral, that might be fine, but you're not neutral at oh, all. Oh, I am indeed. Coming, no, no, you, uh, you earlier said, I'm expressing my faith, this is where I stand, this is the boat I'm in, uh, and so it's quite the boat clear. Of, the boat of truth well, and uh, reason but and truth justice. Truth and reason as you define it. Even well, like uh, democracy, you define democracy in a particular kind of uh, way. Uh, and so when we're talking about truth, then we're looking surely at whether things are coherent, whether they correspond with reality, and then, and, and properly, well, whether or not there is a pragmatism. I use the magical uh, uh, four-syllable word, is it four syllables? Epistemology, I think, a moment ago. Uh, that is our theories about, or our philosophy of how we come to know, uh, our how we can know, how we can approach truth. Um, is there a different epistemology working here between the two of you? Or are you per, are you evoking different epistemological standards? What, uh, David, you would, of course, agree that we can come to know a great deal of truth through the scientific method. Absolutely. But you would not settle, you would not stop there, would you? Well, uh, no, I wouldn't, because I think there are many kinds of truth. Yesterday, I saw the great extravaganza called Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day, I can offer a description of what it means for my students to be in love with each other. Uh, I can give a physiological account. I can give a psychological account. I can give a romantic account. Now, if I'm going to do justice to the notion of love, I have to have all of these things. I must not reduce it to one. Oh, the I danger agree. is a reductionism, yeah. which says it is nothing but... And, and, and it's the mm. complexity that I want to hold on to. And the complexity of religion is not just about, well, we can get some psychological account, we can get some cultural account, we can get some social account. All of these may be true, but there needs to be a divine element. I've mentioned William James in one aspect of his, uh, of his career and of his thought, namely pragmatism. But there's another James. There's the James who wrote the varieties of religious experience. His deep interest in religious experience led him finally to a kind of endorsement of a way of knowing which has very little to do with science. One might well call it mystical illumination. 
Well, I don't want to go uh, down the mystical path, though I do believe that there are experiences people have which are beyond expression. But I want, or rather want to go to a chemist, Michael Polanyi, who wanted to suggest that the nature of knowing and personal knowing is sometimes we know far more than we're able to say, far more than we're able to express. And, and I think that that kind of intuitive, direct knowing is often what religious people express in terms of their own experience of God and the way in which that fundamentally has changed and affected them. Well, the trouble is that, although that may be true, those kinds of knowing, whether they're mystical or just personal and, and ineffable, uh, they don't travel very well. You can't use them in reasonable debate. That's why science doesn't have any role for them, because you, if, if, if you and I have different mystical ways of knowing, we're just at an impasse, and so we have to set those aside. But if you're going to say replicability is the, the test, then how on earth can we use your theories about the origin uh, of folk religion leading to the development of religion? How on earth are we going to replicate that kind of thing in well, order first, to prove it? Well, for, well first of all, uh, I didn't get a chance to say this before. Although I offer a sketch of a theory of how, of how religion could have evolved, I don't claim that it's the truth. I don't claim that I've proved it. I claim this is one. I want people to see what it would look like because a lot of people think, oh, that's just impossible. I can't imagine what a, what a, what a scientific theory of religion could even look like. I said, well, now you can imagine it. If you don't like this theory, replace it with another one. Uh, I, don't, I don't make any claims that it's true. I'm just simply saying here's a sketch of the sort of thing that we, could, we can work on and we can actually confirm. Now, one idea... How, how one, are we going to confirm the folk religion roots? Oh, I think well, Durkheim wasn't able to do it. Well, Floyd but Durkheim, wasn't able to Durkheim do didn't. Do it. Dawkins have, hasn't been able well, to do it. But now we have Daniel well, Dennett who's going to well, do it. Well, well, first of all, Durkheim didn't have some some of the uh, tools that we have today, and some of the analytic tools, and some of the theories that we have today. Um, it's hard to believe that we can generate uh, with any accuracy the say the language of uh, Proto-Indo-European, which there was nobody ever wrote that down, and yet in fact. There are elegant and rigorous techniques for learning a great deal. We can, we can extrapolate back into the past about, about human cultural uh, phenomena, and, and, and we can do it more and more in, in, in many different domains. Well, my problem is really was drawn attention by T.S. Kuhn, who suggested that once upon a time people believed that the world was flat and everybody believed it and that the earth was the center of the universe and everybody believed it and then they discovered no it doesn't work quite like that and along comes Newton and Copernicus and they have a different kind of view and then along comes uh, Einstein and says well actually it's relativity and, and so here you're offering me a quasi-science, and I say quasi-science because there's such a dispute about what the basis and the foundation and the methodology is. You create a, a picture of a meme which is supposed to be the critical analytic tool by which I'm going to understand everything, and I'm thinking... Oh, come on, that's a slight caricature. Well, I, I, I'm thinking of the way in which people talk about atoms, electrons, neutrons, and protons as if they really exist. Actually, they're useful constructs for us helping to understand the behavior and the manifestation, but there are very, very few scientists and very few philosophers of science who actually believe that these are real things. And I'm just wondering what category memes fall into here. Well, I, first of all, I, I doubt your sociology of science. I think that for most scientists, the, 
the reality of atoms and, and electrons is quite secure. The reality of the behavior is very different from the reality, and that's why Milt's point about epistemology is really quite fundamental, because in the end, it's whether or not you want to be a real human and, and be totally skeptical about our capacity to know, and we know nothing but impressions and ideas, so the mind doesn't really exist. It's only a bundle of impressions, or whether or not you think there is some reality, and our descriptions of reality, whether linguistic or conceptual, match up to that reality. You are, both of you, philosophers of very high power. I am a mere social psychologist. But let me turn then to some social data, which are uh, bearing upon what we're discussing, but which are rather puzzling. And, that, and I'm going back to a theme I was voicing earlier about the decline of religion in the Western world and at certain levels of education. The fact is, uh, it may be that lots of the scientists at Oxford are indeed uh, uh, still capable of religious conviction, but if you look at the religious life of Europe, particularly of Western Europe, what you see is that the churches are empty. And if you do social surveys, and they've been done again and again, uh, general skepticism and atheism, uh, sometimes even uh, uh, mounted on a strong base of hostility towards religion or towards Christianity, is readily available to those who talk to the respondents. Well, that's what has gone on? True. Why has that happened? That's half true, uh, because what we're finding is that, yes, there has been a skepticism. Yes, there has been a, a, a people leaving the churches and the synagogues and so on. But what we're actually finding now is a reversal of that trend. We're finding that uh, people are, are recognizing that secular humanism is not sufficient mm -hmm. in and of itself. And people are returning to religion. And the people who are returning to religion are younger people. It's interesting. It's people without roots, without the, the memes developed over the generations. It's the people who have been genuinely secular who are saying, actually, there is some, some fundamental value. Well, actually, 20 years ago, we were very worried about some of those young people turning back to religion, but it wasn't to Christianity or to established Judaism. It was to various imported cults, many of them led by rather irresponsible and sociopathic gurus. Right, but now you're, you're a broadcaster, and I've been amazed how many people in broadcasting and in news and in the media are turning to Catholicism because they're finding there a source of certainty. They're finding there mm -hmm. a consistency in moral value, and that's something they both want to embrace. It's something they believe and something that they want to live and practice. Well, all of this Catholic. does argue then, Daniel, that uh, there are human needs which are not met otherwise than through uh, a return to or a discovery of uh, one or another of the great established religions. Well, it's actually an appreciation of that point that, that grounds my agnosticism about whether or not religion is something that we can mm -hmm. uh, reform. It certainly does a lot of harm. It also does a lot of good. It seems to me to need. I think we, we do have to take these questions very seriously and see if, if, if there's any, see why is it? Why is it that in, say, in the United States, the... Uh, so much of the uh, good works that are done, the organizations that do the good works are, are religious organizations. Why, why haven't any secular organizations arisen? But you spoke a moment ago of the, of the harm that religion does as well and of the need to reform it. What harm does religion do and what kind of reforms do you have in mind? Oh, come on, let's look around. Uh, the, the, the people that, are, that are, are killed because of their religious... Uh, uh, re allegiances uh, uh, every year are, are obvious. The terror in which many people live, the fear, the, the oppression of, of religions around the world. Uh, uh, Specify. Example. All right. I will. Yes, I'd be happy to. 
David was mentioning uh, the difference between the the, the east-west coast, uh, the coastal uh, mm -hmm. secular humanist communities, and the, and the Midwest with its with its strong uh, uh, religious uh, atmosphere. And a few years ago, I published an op-ed piece in the New York Times, uh, coming out of the closet as an atheist and saying, "Look, I'm a bright. I'm 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 that's the term. It's like gay. I came out as as a bright." Uh, I don't. I don't believe in God, and uh, I don't believe in anything supernatural. Lots of people took offense. That, uh, took offense at you and Dawkins characterizing atheists as brights as compared to those. Yes, yes, yes. Slightly pretentious. <laughs> no, no. Actually, actually, I think it was it was it was a good-humored jab. And yeah. and let me let me suggest that 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 uh, when 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 the homosexual people had the the brilliance of. of Latching out of the word "gay," a perfectly good word with another meaning, saying, "No, we're we're the gays," um, it didn't mean that the that the others were the glums. It meant, you know, they had an antonym, and that was straight. And I propose an antonym for for the religious people. They can call themselves the supers because they believe in the supernatural. Yeah. It, it, I I don't apologize for the edge on the term. I think that's quite appropriate. But well, what happened then when you published that op-ed? I got hundreds and hundreds of messages from people in the Midwest saying that. Thank goodness I had said this. They were so oppressed by the atmosphere in their communities. They said, if I ever did this, I would lose my job. If I ever did this, nobody would ever come to my dry cleaning establishment. If I ever admitted my beliefs that I share with you, I would be driven out of town. I got hundreds of messages of that sort. That is a very great evil in this country. Yes, and I think if we're going to compare evils, then we have to think of the evil of Stalin and what he did to the Russian people. We have to look at the evil of Hitler and what he did to the Jewish people and to gypsies and to the homosexual community. Because, yes, of course religion can be abused. Of course people can do terrible things in the name of religion. But actually, if you look at secular philosophies and ideologies and the damage that they have done in the 20th century, then religion pales in significance in comparison. Gentlemen, uh, in the second hour we have more commercials, so we're about to pause for a batch of those, and then shortly thereafter onto the phones. And uh, therefore, uh, I reiterate my invitation for you to join us. Now's the time to take action if you are so inclined. 591-7200 for any question or any that you want to pose or any thought you want to share. 591-7200. And if you're listening uh, via the Internet anyplace else in the world and want to get through to us, the best way, of course, is via email. The email address, extension 720, as one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. Or the aforementioned 591-7200, directly back after this. Our guests tonight are Daniel C. Dennett and David Cook, both of them professional philosophers. Uh, Daniel Dennett is professor of philosophy and director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University in the Boston area, and is the author of the new book, Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. That's published by Viking, and it is, of course, the basis for our discussion tonight. Our other guest, David Cook, is professor of philosophy at Wheaton College, and is a fellow of Green College at Oxford University, and also spent some time as professor of Christian ethics at Southern Seminary. We go to the phones in just an instant, and to the email. But first, uh, you did speak also, and I know that the book deals with this, Daniel, about necessary or at least uh, you hope um, uh, favored reforms. What reforms do you have in mind? Well, since we haven't proven any theory about the nature of religion, I'm not going to talk about specific things we might, we might 
uh, proposed to change religions. I think people have been trying to redesign religions for hundreds of years with a lot of uh, bad results by and large. But I think there's one thing we can do right away, and I think it's very important. I think we should have a national curriculum in the schools, in all the public schools, and for that matter, in the private schools and in for homeschooling, on world religions, just the facts about all the religions of the world, and I think that our children should learn this. And then let the parents teach their children anything else they want in the privacy of their homes or in their churches or in their synagogues or wherever, but they've got to learn these facts. They've got to learn the history, the customs, the creeds, the symbols, the music, and so forth of all of the world's major religions. Uh, we teach... We, we mandate reading, writing, and arithmetic. We mandate American history. I think this would be a, a really w wonderful thing for us to do, and I think we should do it as soon as possible. Um, David, how does that strike you? Well, I'm delighted to, to realize that uh, in the UK they've been doing this for many, many years. Yes, they have, and I think with very good results. With very uh, good it's results. It's a requirement that yes. every child uh, not yes. only uh, learns about religion, but actually is invited to participate, uh, and it's interesting. My wife used to be uh, running a, a school, uh, a public school, uh, and in the public school uh, they had children from every kind of faith, but they all wanted to take part, and the parents wanted them to take part in the religious celebrations because they recognized there was something fundamental to human nature and human being mm -hmm. that religion spoke to, and they wanted their children to grow up with moral values. And it's interesting, the British government are looking to the churches uh, not just for faith-based social mm -hmm. activities, Activity, but actually to help develop moral awareness. Gentlemen, with that, let us go directly to the phones and shortly on to the email. And here is the first caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I come to this as uh, <coughs> a practicing Christian and Catholic, and in one thing which a person has to factor into this is the requirement, if you're a believer in Jesus, that you have to love your neighbor you have to love your enemy, you have to seek justice, and you have to serve the poor. And to love someone who's killed someone who's killed someone in your family, or to seek justice if it's difficult, or to serve the poor when they're seem not easy to serve, is not very easy thing to do and it's a constant struggle. So in terms of whether this is an religion serves a common purpose or whether it's an evolutionary effect. Nonetheless, for a practicing Christian, a person's impelled to do some very difficult things. And how do you factor that into the argument? I don't see what the problem is. I agree. Those are wonderful things to do. And I wish more people had those obligations. And if, if religion is, is the only way to get people to uh, uh, do those hard tasks, then that's a very strong point in its favor. But I don't believe that's true. I think there are plenty of, of, of non-religious people who are as engaged, as morally engaged, as, as committed to improving the lot of others in the world as any people I know. I think, in fact, one of the, one of the, the really unfortunate, uh, I, I'm, I'm tempted to use a word like blasphemy, one of, the, one of the really serious falsehoods that is spread around the country is the idea that if, you, if you're not involved in religion, that you're not morally good. And I think, I think that uh, that presumption should be denied at every opportunity. I don't know how many people make that. I, I certainly don't think that. 
maybe some people do, but I think they're in a vast minority. I think you're absolutely correct, and I think the, the difference is, it's interesting when Marx wanted to give a picture of a, a, a perfect, just society, what he did was he took the Christian values and tried to enshrine them, even in the heart of Marxism. I think the difference for those of us who are believers is not so much about the moral values that we hold, but about where the motivation and the power to carry out those moral values come from, and that's really what religion offers us. Our thanks to the caller, and we We'll arrange on quickly to other callers, 591-7200. And at the moment, one of the two lines are now available. If you were trying to reach us, do try again. And you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Let me try to address, if I can, the profound sense of alienation that comes over people who were once people of faith. Um, having been raised a Catholic, I'm acutely aware of the horrific scandal of the abusive priests. And... To look at it from this perspective, one of the foundations of the Catholic Church is the seven sacraments. As we were taught in Baltimore Catechism, a sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Now, when the men who are presented to us as the direct descendants and inheritors of St. Peter and the Apostles are the beneficiaries of this sacrament and this grace fail so abysmally and malignantly to protect the most innocent and defenseless among us uh, cannot help but question the legitimacy of such a belief system. Um, I'm descended from people who have been Catholics since they immigrated from Central Europe, and all of us for decades and generations in a century worked hard and put money in envelopes every week, money that couldn't really be afforded to be contributed, but was done because it was regarded as the means to a better end for all of us. And all those years of sweat and labor from people in difficult blue-collar jobs in this town and others, instead of paying for schools and churches and hospitals and to clothe the naked and feed the hungry is now going to pay settlements. Yes, um, it's very, very difficult to see the legitimacy in any faith after this kind of debauchery. Well, you speak this very strongly and very um, evocatively, and uh, obviously with great authenticity. Let's get some response. David Cook. Well, uh, it's interesting that uh, Jesus himself would 100% agree with you because he condemns those who in any way uh, cause harm to children. Uh, and the teaching of Jesus is quite clear. Now, unfortunately, as human beings, we all fail and we all fall short. That's the nature of sin. Uh, and to be fair to the Catholic Church, I've never heard any Catholic defend this kind of behavior. I've never heard any Catholic, uh, hierarchy, anyone in the Catholic hierarchy say, oh, it was all right, let's just gloss it over. They recognize that the Church really got it wrong here and now are really trying to put in place uh, ways of safeguarding. But that doesn't undercut... Excuse me, sir, but none of that has happened. You're, you're not familiar with Cardinal Law in Boston, who flim-flammed and tap-danced around all of this and gave ex, uh, explanations for it. The Archdiocese of Boston is essentially in receivership now, selling off its property, and he's rewarded with 
uh, a sinister in Rome at a major cathedral. But he's been removed from the kind of role that he had because people recognized that Excuse he wasn't Excuse me, fulfilling. but he should spend the rest of his life in a cloistered monastery on his knees begging God for forgiveness. Well, well quite. That's now, not the case. Now, now, what you're saying is that the standard by which you want to judge people in the way that you want to treat him, uh, part of the, the heart of Christianity is a recognition that often we do things which are wrong and evil, and we do have to seek forgiveness. And he must do that in his way, in his own way, uh, and in a way which the church can recognise. That's not mm -hmm. to defend anything that he's done or any decisions, but the church is really struggling to overcome this problem of evil. And speaking of Boston, Daniel Dennett lives in it or near it. Yes, I don't have much to add to what our what our caller has said. I think, in fact, uh, we've only seen the beginning of the problems that the Catholic Church is going to have with this, as as the cases are uncovered in other parts of the Catholic world. Um, uh, and this isn't a, this isn't a, an isolated thing. Other other religions have have similar problems. Yes, of course. And and uh, I leave it at that. It's an item in the general category uh, that requires uh, theodicy. That is to say, the basic question of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Uh, and if they happen within the church, uh, that's all the more dramatic and all the more upsetting. Uh, how does one understand God's relation to us when we have sexually abusive priests and sexually abusive imams and rabbis, I'm sure? Well, I just wonder what kind of view of God we would have if every time anything bad was going to happen or any time a human being was going to make a bad choice or behave in an evil way, God popped into the world control that and then popped out again there would be no cause and effect there would be no science there would be no free human freedom and human will and the price that we pay for being able to make choices mm. is that sometimes people make terrible choices and do terrible things to other people but, but not just religious people but you know if I may now once again uh, speak with my um, as a psychologist uh, which I don't usually do on this program but still uh, those researchable questions that Daniel was talking yep. about earlier one interesting and researchable question, which has been much researched already, is what kinds of people are uh, drawn to ministry, are drawn to the clerical life. And we do know in the Catholic Church, given uh, the vow of celibacy, uh, that uh, many people of potential homosexual orientation are drawn into Catholic life. We also know that there has been a kind of development of a homosexual subculture within the clergy, particularly in certain seminaries. We've had books which report on that and provide uh, considerable evidence, and uh, that is acknowledged even by many who study the priesthood with, while wearing the priestly collar, who are sociologists of the Catholic Church, uh, but are themselves ordained, uh, who uh, offer data now suggesting that maybe a good half of all the American Catholic clergy are essentially homosexual in disposition, if not in practice. I don't think the problem of homosexuality in the church is the right emphasis. I think well, the sexual the, abuse that is under uh, yes. consideration has been essentially male on male. Well, m most of it, I gather, has. Yeah. Uh, but it seems to me much more important to recognize that, as our traditions and laws now have it, churches <laughs> have a special position in the law, which differs from, say corporations and 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 even even other charities that are not religious and 
all I want to see is that the same standards be used across the board. I mean, if 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 uh, if we're going to go after pharmaceutical companies for hiding the results that don't uh, comport well with what they want and require them to publish all of their results and not just the ones that favor their drugs, we should require the same of the churches. Uh, gentlemen, with that, we are, I fear, late for some commercials. A quick stop for that and then right back to the phones and to some interesting email that has accumulated. Uh, but there are one or two phone lines available again, 591-7200. And directly back to David Cook and to Daniel Dennett. I gather, Daniel, you are doing a book signing or an appearance tomorrow at the University of Chicago. Yeah, at noon at, at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's right on University Avenue, uh, just down the street from uh, where the psychology department is located. Gentlemen, let me read you an email. Um, thanks for yet another brilliant program, says this listener. Uh, that thanks goes to our two guests, Daniel Dennett and David Cook. It has been discussed by your guests indirectly, but I think that it bears stating explicitly. The fundamental aspect of religion is faith, which is inherently an irrational concept. Faith does not necessarily mean something that you have to actively foster. It can be passive and just a natural part of your life. My point, however, is that faith is incapable of articulation. Indeed, every religion, of which I am aware, holds its gods to be beyond explanation and rationalization. So whatever you believe, no amount of study will ever be able to explain faith and religion. I think that religion provides fertile ground for philosophical debate, but that it is a wasted effort to attempt to, quote, disprove it by empirical studies. There will always be things that we cannot explain, and many people will always explain them by religion, whether or not this is a correct explanation. Incidentally, I am agnostic, raised Catholic, and my wife is a faithful Catholic. I respect her faith deeply, believe it is a gift, and do everything I can to encourage it. But I have been unable to share it. Fascinating. Two points. One, science can study faith as a phenomenon. It's, it's, it's a psychological phenomenon. They, just as they can study rational belief, they can study irrational belief. Uh, you don't have to be irrational to study it. You, you can study it scientifically, and that's what I'm calling for. And in fact, I'm not in fact, spending much time at all, a mere seven pages, as one reviewer said, talking about proving or disproving the, the articles of faith about whether God exists. I leave that out. That's, that's not part of my project. I'm not trying to do, have science do what religion does. I'm saying let's have science study, study what religion does. And that it can do. I want to take issue with the uh, email in two ways because it seems to me that faith is not irrational. Uh, faith, of course, does not offer total, absolute explanation and rationalization, but nothing does. That's the human condition. No scientific understanding of the world is total, is absolute in that kind of sense. The other thing about faith is that faith must lead to works. It's not enough for faith to be passive. The whole point about religious faith is it finds expression in the way that we live, the way that we treat other people, the way that we do justice and walk with mercy. Let me um, try another email on you. Daniel Dennett praises Christianity as a wonderful story that, quote, works well. Among its benefits are to provide various goods that we might not have without religion. It helps us to survive and thrive. So why not accept Christianity or theism or pragmatic, uh, rather, accept Christianity or theism on pragmatic evolutionary grounds, as Pascal and James 
recommend. The reference, of course, as you know, uh, to Blaise Pascal. Um, that's a good email because it, it makes the assumption that I'm specifically trying to get people to stop making. Yes, I said the story works well. At what? At spreading itself. Whether the story is also good for something else is another matter. I think it's brilliantly designed to lodge in people's heads and get spread and spread and spread all over the world. That's that's what it's evolved to what do. do. You, what do you make of testimony, particularly the kind that fundamentalists solicit in their, uh, in their uh, worship services? That is, people who come up and say, I was a miserable sinner, I was yep. very unhappy, and Jesus entered my life, I took him into my heart, and now I am truly saved, I am reborn. And life and there is evidence that that is true for many people who claim it and the faith has to work it has to make that transformation and that's really what the vital thing is we don't believe things because it brings about a transformation we believe it because it's true and and i think daniel and i are going to agree that we're concerned about truth but truth also should change and transform people and situations so it's a both and not an either or well testimony witnessing is a is itself a very interesting design feature of religion because as it were when it's done right it very strongly discourages any criticism or questioning the person comes to you personally and tells a story and you're put in a position where it's extremely rude to challenge or question and so you just don't it turns off critical attention to the very story you're hearing i think that's a i think that's a brilliant design feature of religion and it's very good at spreading religion but I don't think that's just the case, because if you take the New Testament, what we have are, are uh, four testimonies by the gospel writers. They give us an account, and of course we have to ask about those accounts. Mm. Are they true? Are they accurate? Did this really happen? Did it really happen in that kind of way? And so, and until and unless people read it for themselves, and then look at the historical context, the historical facts, and see whether or not there's a match, then that wouldn't be genuine faith. That um, prompts me, David, to ask you directly. Um, there are many, uh, I've often asked this of people who teach at Wheaton and other uh, serious religionists. Uh, how does the, all the search for the historical Jesus scholarship affect you? Uh, it has provided grounds for doubt as to the absolute veracity, the absolute uh, truth of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. I don't think it need lead to any doubt about the veracity. Uh, I think that the search for the historical Jesus, as we saw uh, in the end of the 1900s, really ran into serious difficulty about how that could be done. We can't go and reinvent the wheel. But it's interesting that uh, whether we look at the alternative sources, the New Testament, when we look at the historical context, when we look at the Jewish writers, when we look at the early Roman writers, we find a, a genuine consistency between the accounts that they give and the accounts that the New Testament give. So it's clear that Jesus was a historical reality. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. Now, whether or not the resurrection happened, that is debatable. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, and here's the ultimate kind of test of religion says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead then we're of all people the most miserable mm -hmm. Christ is dead everybody who's died is gone and there's no hope uh, and so he's quite clear that there has to be some kind of genuine test a test of faith a test of historicity and he's unafraid of that that isn't a genuine test that's just that's just saying 
this is what we want to believe because if it, if we don't believe it, uh, we're doomed. That's that's. <laughs> imagine a scientist that said, if 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 our results don't work out right, the company is going to go bankrupt and we're all going to be without jobs and we're going to lose our tenured positions. That's exactly that's what no happened test. in Korea. That's exactly <laughs> what happened in Korea when they t put the work and, of the and we, into the and test. Exactly, and, and we and we it. say and we say. That's not the way you test something. Well, it, you know, on the contrary, that was exactly the way you test it, to make sure that what the Koreans were saying and doing actually was the case. They discovered it wasn't, and so the whole thing collapses there. What, That's a genuine test. And if they were to discover the bones of Jesus uh, behind the, beside the Holy Sepulchre uh, in Jerusalem, then people would have to rethink their whole faith. Of course they would. There was a claim just a few years ago that they had discovered the bones of Jesus' brother James in an ossuary yes. uh, in Israel. Though I gather that's, it was Herschel Shanks, uh, who was the great <coughs> proprietor of the Society for Biblical Archaeology or something mm -hmm. like that, who made that claim. Uh, but uh, now that, that has been rather disconfirmed, and Herschel died, I think, of a broken heart. He died only within the last year. Uh, we pause the last round of commercials, then directly back. And we go right back to the phones after this brief announcement. Uh, that tonight, Steve and Johnny will be answering all of your computer questions on this week's edition of Website Wednesday Night. You'll hear that right after this program on The Voice of Chicago, 720 WGN. And gentlemen, we go back to the phones. Here is the next caller. Good evening. Uh, good evening. Thank you for taking my call on an excellent show tonight. Thank you, sir. Um, I wanted to ask, and it somewhat, somewhat relates to the issue of the abuse in the Catholic world, uh, but how personal and social responsibility is affected by having a faith in a supernatural power or a faith in an afterlife uh, versus not having that faith or not taking any guesses to what happens after you die? It's the question of the correlation between goodness and religious conviction. I see no reason to think that it makes much difference at all. Um, many religious thinkers and anti-religious thinkers, people like Nietzsche, have, have looked at the idea that people's morality depends on their belief and reward in, in heaven or punishment in hell, and, and they've scoffed at it as, as really demeaning to people, that people can be quite capable of moral behavior simply because they want to do the right thing. Uh, the idea that, that they're only doing it for reward in heaven is a very infantile idea, and I think it, it's, uh, it's one we can cast aside quite readily. There may have been a time earlier in human civilization when the threat of eternal punishment or the promise of pie in the sky would, would keep people in line, but I think we've outgrown that. Not at all. Uh, it's interesting that people who are good simply in order to get a uh, front row seat in 144,000 or to avoid the burning fires of heaven, of hell, are clearly uh, not, not in the business of really being good. Uh, the heart of religion is, is about relationship. And if you are in relationship with the living God, with Christ, then, of course, you want to live in a particular kind of way. That supplies the motivation. It supplies the power for people. People are good in, in Christianity not because they think they're going to win a reward as a result of that. They're good because that's what it means to be in a relationship and to believe and to express your belief in practice. Do I get a hint in what you've just said that though you are uh, certainly a serious Christian, you are rather negatively disposed towards 
the kind of uh, eschatology that goes with uh, fundamentalism these days. Uh, I'm not so worried about the eschatology. What I'm concerned about is where people try to suggest that heaven and hell are used as sticks and carrots uh, in order to terrify people into the kingdom of God. And as I read the New Testament, it's quite clear that when Jesus talks about heaven and hell, he's talking about the inevitable consequence <coughs> of the way that people live and the choices that people have made. He's not trying to frighten people into being good because he knew uh, that's not the path to goodness. But how do you feel about the millennialist myth that uh, has flourished in this country, was introduced by some um, odd Englishman who came over here in the last century, or in the, the late in the 19th century, but um, uh, the predispensational millennialism and or, or the many pre-millennial, the amillennial, the post-millennial. Yes, of course. Uh, I feel about it exactly the same way as I feel about Daniel uh, and his use of all the various uh, social, psychological, cultural, biological phenomena. We will never know the answer to that. Uh, and therefore, uh, Jesus says nobody knows the day, nobody knows the hour. So don't spend your time wasting about that. I think we should be much more concerned about here and now and dealing with the problems that face us, rather than making sure that we've got some kind of reward in the next world. So that's a variant on the Christian story which flourishes in this country. How well it does elsewhere, I don't know. Well, I think that the problem with the millennialists and those who, who anticipate the uh, judgment day coming along, the, the reason that this is actually socially very dangerous is that these people have no sense of responsibility to future generations on Earth. They think, well, the, the Earth is only going to be here for another few years, so it doesn't matter if we cut down. They also the rather look forward to uh, war in the Middle East, because uh, that indeed, will indeed, indeed, and I find this uh, that will a be a sign very, of the, of I the find end this time. to be a, a, a very disturbing trend, yeah. and I am seriously concerned that people with that bizarre set of beliefs may be in positions of power, and that that is really a frightening assumption. I think that people have to go back to the, the, the source and to look at the teaching of Jesus and see what he actually had to say about the end of the world and about the end times and about how he sets that in the context of how we deal with other human beings. And that's the fundamental heart of the gospel. Let's work in one or two more quick calls. We go to the next one. You are on the air. Good evening. Yes, good evening, Dr. Rosenberg. And let me say, first of all, I would say a big uh, amen to the uh, comments of the, the previous, uh, your previous uh, panelists there. Um, I, I basically called in to um, comment on the uh, trying to put the uh, science, uh, apply scientific standards uh, to faith, with the, which I think is quite futile because I think uh, uh, faith uh, is uh, actually inclusive of science uh, when you consider that all that science really is is a study uh, and discovery of what, in fact, the Creator has made. And this is the same Creator who not only has set the and established the laws of nature, but has done so much more beyond that. And um, to attempt to explain faith in the context of science, I, I think, is just um, not uh, a possibility. It doesn't include all the reality. Science is limit, so very limited by comparison. It's fascinating because um, my colleague, Dot Chappell, and I have just edited a book called Not Just Science, looking at the different ways the different scientists, 29 different contributors, actually practice science and, and reflecting on w what is their own particular faith position in relation to that. You're quite right. It's not just science. Yes, yeah, thank you. We thank you, ma'am, for the call. And quickly to another. Hello, you're on the air. Oh, hello. Thank you. A terrific discussion, all of you. 
I'd like to <clears throat> like to go back to Dr. Dennett's um, earlier uh, idea you spoke about, about the evolution of religion uh, back in prehistorical times. I, I'm, I'm a Catholic Christian myself, and I found that, found that fascinating, uh, valuable, and acceptable to me. But it, it does leave us with the problem of first cause, which I'm sure Dr. Dennett has, will have plenty to say on. Um, so I'd like to throw that out there. Secondly, um, uh, uh, the Christian viewpoint, as far as I can see, it might suggest that this evolutionary process might have prepared us to commune and to communicate with God thousands of years later. Um, maybe you could address that. And then finally, I just want to ask about uh, a book that Dr. Dennett's mentioned in that I've just begun to read called Finding Darwin's God by Kenneth Miller. I just, I've barely begun and I'd like to hear any comments. Um, a lot, a lot to talk about. Um, the issue, I had very little time to do. The, the sure. issue of first cause is one that I, I'm not going to address because it would take take too long. But I, if you if you just can't imagine how there could be any way around the problem of the first cause, then you should then you should read uh, current work in in cosmology and see how there are in fact uh, an embarrassment of riches, all sorts of interesting theoretical ideas that in the end. Uh, uh, can be uh, sorted out and, and even tested. Some of them uh, uh, quite appropriately. We're talking about superstring theory, particularly. Well, well, just for instance, but no. but uh, um, uh, 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 multiple universe sure. theories and things yeah. like that. Um, so that that's simply a, uh, an an interesting, I think, side issue that. Uh, probably won't interest religious people all that much because it gets very technical very fast. Um, as for, as for uh, 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 Ken Miller's book, uh, Ken is, is a, a, a practicing Catholic and a very fine evolutionary biologist, and he's uh, very good at the mental gymnastics that allows him to do that. We thank you, sir, for the call, and we have just about run out of time. In one minute, summary positions. David Cook. Well, we're not just products of evolution, so sociology, or culture. We are human beings who can respond to the God who reveals himself, and we can live differently as a result. Daniel Dennett. We're animals that differ from the rest of the animal world in having human culture, which is itself a product mm -hmm. of evolution. And among the most amazing products of that cultural evolution are religions which have been elegantly designed by evolutionary processes over the eons. And with that, we come close to the end of the available time. Uh, I do want to once again give the full title of the new book by Daniel Dennett. It is Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon, and that is published by Viking.